0: You're listening to a podcast from
1: 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist.
2: The Naked Scientist, Chris Smith, is back with us this week and we have just opened our lines taking your science questions. Chris, how are you doing?
1: Good morning. I'm very well, thank you very much. And It's a fine, sunny day uh, and actually you've caught me on a boat.
2: <laughs> Where are <laughs> you on a boat? this week. Where are you on a boat?
1: Well, uh, I'm actually on the Norfolk Broads, so if you imagine a map of England, the bottom half, the right half of the bottom half, that's yep. Norfolk, yep. and there's a whole load of interconnected waterways and big open patches of water, which which actually date back hundreds of years to a time when the locals used to do two things. They used to cut reeds for thatching houses, but also the ground is very peat-rich, Yeah. So they used to dig the peat out of the ground and then dry it and use it for fuel because peat is one step removed from coal. Yeah, It's got a lot of carbon in it, so you can burn it. And uh, and so eventually all these workings flooded out, and now we have this beautiful interconnected system of waterways and, and lakes, effectively, that you could you can go and uh, drive boats around. It's absolutely huge. So I've had a, a beautiful week here doing that.
2: I'm glad to hear you are telling us about boats and peat and so on, but I don't believe you about sunny weather in Norfolk. Um, so let me let me uh, ask you, um, we've got some questions. I've got Ray from Pretoria. Hello, Ray. Ask Dr. Hello, Chris what are you are like. You, I'm great. Dr. Chris will answer. All right. Um,
3: my question was, I was reading in a magazine yesterday, um, I can't recall the title of the magazine, um, that they're working on a system of of um, Smart homes in which they'll be able to charge electronic devices through wireless means. My question for uh, the next scientist is: How how they do that? What is the you know what would the mechanics be? What mechanics would be involved in wirelessly charging electronic devices? Uh,
1: Chris, yes, because one question. of the big constraints about electronic devices perennially, you know, since we started to embrace the digital revolution and, and the mobile revolution, which actually goes back twenty or thirty years. One of the big problems is the power supply, because the phones that we're using have such powerful processes in them that they consume enormous amounts of energy. And one of the big problems is providing enough energy, so you need batteries. And obviously the battery determines the shape and size of the device. And to have more powerful devices, we need more batteries that are more powerful. Same with cars. So people are looking at other alternatives. Can we make ways of transmitting energy which doesn't involve a wire, which is inconvenient and tethers you to something, or a battery, which dictates the size and shape and form- performance of your gadget. Unfortunately, it's not trivial to transmit energy in this way. Now, for simple things like an electric toothbrush, you can do this. And the way an electric toothbrush charges wirelessly is that in the base station that you plug it onto, you have a coil. In the device itself, there is another coil Mains electricity passing through the first coil induces because it's alternating current, produces a changing magnetic field and this is felt by the field in the device, like the toothbrush, and if you put a piece of wire in a changing magnetic field, the electrons in the wire will try to move in sympathy and you get an electric current flowing in the secondary windings of the coil. The thing is though, these fields which are effectively are using a magnetic field, a changing magnetic field to convey energy, they don't transmit over long distances and in fact they follow what we call an inverse square law so if you double the distance you go from 1 meter to 2 meters away then you get 1 over 2 squared which is a quarter of the energy and so on and so forth so very quickly the amount of energy, the energy density drops off and it becomes a very inefficient way to transmit energy so people have looked at ways of doing this and they've asked can we beam energy around a room in this way but at the moment we haven't got simple ways of doing that one quite clever way that technologists are looking at is to say, well, can we make devices that are so energy efficient, that use so little energy, that they can, in fact, extract energy from the environment itself? And one of the biggest chip design companies in the world, Arm, they're actually based in Cambridge, and they have their chips are in 99-plus percent of the mobile devices in the world. One of the approaches they are taking is to design systems which can use effectively the pizza electric effect, where when you squeeze a crystal you put some energy in and it then releases or relinquishes some electrons that you can do some work with. Well, they're designing systems where just the bashing of, of air molecules against the surface is enough to release a bit of energy that can be used to power very, very low-power low, low power electronics. Now, that might be an alternative, but we're certainly not at the stage yet where we can do away with wires, I'm afraid.
2: Um, Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Um, I've got Avi in Brighton. Avi, your question to Chris.
3: I was just wondering, why do people have different colored irises and is there any advantages for, uh, you know, a lighter color to a darker color?
1: Right, so why do we all have different colored eyes? Well, if you look around the world, you'll see that people who tend to have darker hues to their skin, blacker skin, whether that's African people or people in the Far East, China, for example, with dark skin tends to go dark eyes. And there's no, that's no mistake because the thing that makes your skin dark is melanin and the same pigments can be added to the eye to make the eye dark. And, and it is useful to have a dark eye in the same environments where it's useful to have dark skin, where there's a lot of solar radiation. So that's probably a natural course of evolution. For people with blue eyes like me, what's happened there is that the eye, the iris, has a system of genes which don't work properly to add the black colour to the eye so it looks blue because you haven't got any of the pigments being added. And this has evolved in the population because people didn't need to have dark eyes anymore. In the same way that when humans first evolved they would have had light, pale skin. They evolved in Africa and because there's a lot of sun in Africa they would have then had to evolve dark skin because the sunlight damages folic acid in the skin, and folic acid is needed to have healthy babies because if you have low levels of folic acid, you have problems with dividing cells, oh. and you have neural tube defects like spina bifida. Mm, okay. So people evolved to have dark skin. When people then ev- left Africa 55,000, 60,000 years ago and populated the rest of the world, the pressure of the having to have dark skin for sunlight reasons was removed because... There's not as much sunshine in other parts of the world all the time. And so, therefore, people then had the problem of they didn't have enough vitamin D because you make vitamin D in your skin. So people then had to evolve to go back to having paler skin again. And then the advantage of having dark eyes is also lost. And so, as a result, other eye colors begin to evolve. And that's why you tend to see in people who have paler skin other sorts of eye colors other than just dark sort of browny-black pigmented eyes. And blue is is one part of that spectrum, but greens and other hues of brown are possible too. And there are lots and lots of genes which are involved in adding those colours to the eye. And you need to have almost none of them working the way that they do in someone with black eyes in order to have blue eyes. And so we see a mixture of the combinations and additions of all of those genes in in the people you see around the world. But it's largely driven by that exodus out of Africa 50,000, 60,000 years ago and a lack of sunshine in places like where I live.
2: Thank you, Avi. Tasneem, Salaam, we take your question to the Naked Scientist after this.
1: 702
2: and
3: Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist.
2: Taking your calls to the Naked Scientist. Tasneem, what is your question for Chris? Hi,
3: uh, morning. My question is, I have read quite a few times this um, Going, uh, emails going around where you shouldn't really, uh, drink from a plastic bottle and leave in the car because it's cause of a can- uh, cause- part of the reason we get cancer is because of drinking from those plastic bottles. So then if that is the case, why are we sold water in a plastic bottle and what is the difference? Because I'm very conscious about recycling, so I prefer sometimes use that water bottle that I bought and just pull it up and use it. Is there really any truth to that?
1: Hello. Well, you're right that it's certainly a ubiquitous phenomenon that water is sold often in plastic bottles. And the reason for using plastic is that it's very cheap to manufacture. It's very light. And so the weight of the product, the water, is is not paradoxically less than the weight of the thing it's carried around in, because that's the problem with glass. It takes a lot of energy to make glass. It takes a lot of energy to, to transport glass. And glass is fragile, so it can break The problem with plastic is that you have to add chemicals to plastic in order to give it the properties that you want to make it nice and flexible and bendy and feel smooth. And those are called plasticizers. And one of the concerns is that those chemicals, those plasticizers, can leach out of the plastic and they get into the thing that is the product inside the plastic bottle. And you may have noticed that over time, if you keep reusing a plastic bottle, eventually it loses its nice springiness and it becomes brittle. And it becomes brittle because it has lost all of those plasticizers. That's because you've drunk them all. Now, whether or not they cause cancer, we don't know the answer to this. Uh, Big trials are going on. People are looking at this sort of thing. There's certainly evidence linking some of the chemicals that have been used in the past to things like cancer. But there's no clear consensus at the moment. So, effectively, we're doing a huge human experiment where there is evidence that uh, it may be linked to health problems is that some of these plasticizers can look like hormones in the body. Because the molecules are a similar shape, they can lock on to the same things that hormones lock on to in our body to send signals to different tissues. And as a result, they can fool parts of the body into thinking they're seeing certain hormones that aren't really there. And this is a concern, and people are worried about this with particularly reference to baby foods, baby bottles, and also when it gets into the environment, because when we throw these things away, they go into waterways and they may have effects on animals like fish and make them change sex or lose their fertility. They may do the same thing in humans. At the moment, we don't know for sure, but people are certainly concerned about this.
2: Thank thank you, Tasneem. Um, David from Pretoria, your question for the Naked Scientist.
3: Yes, hi. Um, my question is um, the, the lines that we have in the palms of our hands, what purpose do they serve? Um, first of all, but um I've heard somebody say that um, they can actually be used to determine paternity. Is there any truth to that? Um, Thanks, I listening on the radio.
1: So, lines on the palm of your hand, what do they mean, why are they there, and is there any truth in them being able to tell us about what might happen to us in future? Well, the the reason they happen, they're skin folds, they're different in everybody in the, in the sense that everybody's fingerprints look a bit different and, uh, and that's because they're, they're formed by a random process of how cells organize themselves when you're growing as a baby. They, they, the only relevance they have is they are points of stress across your hand. They're a reserve of skin. The skin is thrown into thicker folds there so that when you flex or, or extend your hand, you have skin that you can stretch out and pack back together. This has another function as well, which is it improves grip. And there's some evidence that uh, you have things like fingerprints and lines on your hands because actually it works a bit like the tread on a tyre on a wet road. It enables water to be channeled away from the the, the grip surfaces of your fingers, which means even when you get wet or sweaty, you can still hold on to things well. Um, And so that's what we think those lines are all about, both on the palm but also down your fingers and on your fingertips and on your toes.
2: Yeah, Riyadh, uh, I want... I hope you're going to ask uh, Chris. Uh, Chris... I hope you I hope you're going to ask Chris about uh, what makes politicians stupid.
3: Yes. <laughs> uh, I wanted to find out with regards to... Well, Chris was speaking about uh, your eye colour and how it has changed uh, with different environments. Um, does your hair have the same thing to do with that? Like, uh, you see African people have... Uh, more curly hair, and Uh, Europeans have straighter hair. Does that have to do with uh, your environment as well?
1: Yes, absolutely. And um, if you look at the stereotypical African hair, which is curly, then what it achieves by being curly like that is it forms a very compact, very dense layer, which when you're walking around under the noonday sun, would, be, would put enormous amounts of suns, both heat and radiation, onto the top of the head. The curliness of the hair means that you get a very good barrier protecting the top of the head against the sun, uh, both a thermal one and uh, a, a light barrier. And that advantage also is lost when one goes out of Africa. And so, therefore, there was less selection pressure on keeping the genes in the population that makes hair curly. And so, as a result, people in sort of Europeans. Tended to have less curly hair. The interesting one is if you look at Aborigines in Australia, they have very, very dark skin. And they when they got to Australia something like forty fifty thousand 50,000 years ago, they were some of the first emigres from Africa. They headed straight east and then south down into Australia. And they actually have relatively straight hair. So it's interesting that those changes that occurred... And, and led to the hair becoming less curly. It seems to have occurred fairly promptly. So there's clearly a strong advantage to having curly hair if you, if you live in Africa. But then it's lost fairly easily. But the Aborigines, despite 50,000 years of breeding in, in Australia in an isolated way, they haven't, they haven't evolved to have that curly hair and just have very thick black hair instead.
2: Renee from, uh, Ronnie from Pretoria. Hi, good
1: morning guys. Thanks for the call.
3: I have a question regarding the South African gas, uh, installation regulations, uh, currently. Uh, I'm busy with the hub installation and, uh, I need compliance, uh, compliance, I need to be compliant to the regulations. And I find it very, uh, strange that, uh, for an outside installation, it's the gas bottle cannot be placed within so many meters of a door, of a window, of an electrical switch, and even a little stormwater drain. I understand safety and I I adhere to safety regulations, you know. I want to be uh, compliant as well. But on the other hand, you are still allowed to install a gas cylinder inside the kitchen in a cupboard. Now, on the outside installation, it gets really expensive because of all the windows that you have. And uh, you need to add extra piping to get a gas bottle as far away as possible from these uh, elements, you know. So well, how can
1: that be safe uh, compared to the indoor installation? Zaki, the phone line wasn't brilliant, so I was struggling to understand the question. Could you just summarize in a few words for me what was being asked, please?
2: Ooh, now you're asking um, someone who's very dumb to ask answer a science question. Let me... Um,
1: well, I just need so to know what the Let's question go back was. to line one. Let's go back
2: to <laughs> line one. Chamoto, uh, just uh, can you ask your question from Pretoria? Hello, Chamoto.
3: Yes, my question is regarding um, aspartame, the artificial sweetener, because there have been reports that it's not good for you because it causes cancer. So I actually wanted to understand how does it cause cancer and have there been actual reports of people dying from cancer because they took aspartame instead of uh, ordinary sugar. Like people who have diabetes and those kinds of things or people who are trying to lose weight that want the sweet taste but um, they don't take actual sugar, they take their low kilojoule or kilojoule-free things like aspartame. It also is in things like gum and uh, the artificially sweetened uh, soft drinks. Thanks. I'll listen on the radio. Sure.
1: Okay, that's an that's interesting one. So what, what actually is an artificial sweetener and how does it work? Well, the way these things work is that they are a molecule which is capable of stimulating the, the taste receptors in your mouth that you normally detect sweetness with. So on your tongue, there are receptors which are like chemical docking stations that are looking for molecules shaped like sugars. And when they see them, this sends a signal down a nerve into your brain stem saying, I am experiencing a sweet taste. When you make a sweetener molecule, what you're doing is making a molecule that looks a bit like a certain part of a sugar molecule, which is capable of locking onto the same receptor or docking station and triggering the same response that the sugar would, But the sweetener molecule doesn't have the same energy in the molecule or it can't be metabolized by the metabolic pathways in the body into energy in the same way sugar can. Therefore, it has the sweetness effect, but it doesn't have any of the metabolic consequences of sugar. Now, not all of these molecules uh, are going to be safe like sugar, potentially. It's perfectly possible to make molecules that taste great but are very, very toxic. Hopefully, when people make sweetener molecules, they do tests and they make sure that they're not going to poison us. But that's, again, where big experiments looking at these things over long periods of time on people, making sure there are no adverse health outcomes. That's where those sorts of post-marketing studies come in. Um, I'm not aware of any really good, robust, resilient evidence that these commonly used sweeteners um, are linked to deleterious health effects. But people are monitoring this all the time just to make sure that that's the case.
2: Uh, Chris, we're going over to Lee in Pretoria
3: Hello Hello Lee Hello, Uh, my question for the Naked uh, Scientist is that uh, if um, someone uh, who is um, HIV positive with the virus and for some years now he's been living with us and it begins to develop some kind of impulse on the face and on the neck uh, is that to do with the virus, or it has nothing to do with that? And what causes the pimples on the forehead and on the neck? Like when it's it scratched, then uh, it becomes something like that. Or is there any treatment? Or
1: what can that be? Thank you, origin from the lady. Thank you again. I think I got most of that one, but it was a few few bits. Were, it's not a brilliant phone line. Could you just summarise for me? Um.
2: Hmm. I'm going to reveal who's here, and he's going to... Um, no, I'm not going to reveal who's here, but I've been, my attention has been taken away. So I want to say to everyone, thank you for your science questions. And Chris, thank you for you answering those questions. I want you to enjoy the boat. Actually not. I hope you, you don't enjoy the boat. But meantime, it's 10.30, and Aurelie has the latest from Eyewitness News.